everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I am your host, as always, Kerry Parker. And uh, we've got a little bit of a different episode for you this week. Uh, we haven't done a Castle Defense 101 show in a long time. Uh, those are the kind of shows where I stepped away from the news and stepped away from the interviews and tried to cover a particular topic and kind of do a learning session. Uh, teach you about something that's related to a lot of the things that we talk about that we maybe don't get a chance to go in depth on. Uh, and this one's going to be a fun one. At least I hope you find this as fun as I do. Uh, we're going to talk about cryptography and encryption. What, is, <laughs> what does it really mean? We talk about these things all the time on the show because we talk about how important it is for your communications to be encrypted over the internet and how you want that security and privacy. But what does that actually mean? What is really going on? And now let me just start by saying that we are not going to come out of this crypto experts. I'm going to, in fact, what I'm really going to do in a lot of this is I'm going to talk about a little bit of history because I think it's fascinating of how crypto has been used in the past and where it came from. And we're going to start with some very, very, very simple uh, crypto. And just to give you an idea of what it means to encrypt something, to, uh, to encipher something. And it's, it's really kind of fun and some stuff that you've probably never thought about before. And uh, I think it's just going to be fascinating. So Hang with me for a little bit, and we are going to talk about Crypto 101. So what is cryptography? What is encryption? Uh, well, if you look at the word cryptography, and uh, I did this with a little help of my mother, the Latin teacher and word power expert, uh, consulted her on this. The roots of that, if you break up the word, are crypto and or crypt, yeah, crypto and graphy, right? Uh, so the crypto part is, means secret or hidden, and the graphy part means writing. So secret writing or hidden writing. Uh, so the idea behind cryptography is that you want to be able to communicate something in a way that nobody else except your intended recipient can understand. So the way this generally works when we when we when we encipher a message as uh, we take the input, which we usually in the crypto world call the plain text. That is like this is what it looks like going in. This is the readable part. This is when you can actually still understand it. You take the the, the plain text. And then you put it through something, some sort of an algorithm, a process, uh, something you do that takes that, that message and makes it unreadable by somebody else. That's the cipher. That is the encryption part. That is where we are garbling the message uh, in such a way that nobody else can understand it or nobody else will be able to see it. And then at the far end, when, when the recipient gets that message, they need to be able to decipher or, or decrypt that message and take it from whatever weird garbled form it's in, an unrecognizable form that it's in, and then change it back so it can actually see the original plain text that was sent. That, in a nutshell, is what we do when we encrypt a message. That is what we do when we get on the Internet, when we send our credit card information from our computer to Amazon.com. Uh, there's an HTTPS, the S meaning secure, that that connection is encrypted so that your credit card number, even though it's traveling across the, the wide range of the Internet and going through actually multiple computers and routers and all, all sorts of things along the way, you know, including your, your Internet service provider and uh, the Internet backbone providers and eventually Amazon service provider and then to Amazon's computers that are actually going to respond to your request to say, hey, show me the Amazon homepage. When you do that under the seat, under the covers, um, unbeknownst to you, uh, it's being encrypted so that when you do go to buy that whatever online at Amazon.com and you give me your credit card information, your credit card numbers are only seen by you and Amazon. 
So that's why it's so crucial. But encryption has actually been around a really long time. Now, in modern day, uh, you know, encryption is all done with computers and it's all bits and bytes. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that. But I, to really understand what this is about and to kind of give you a flavor for encryption and why I think it's just so fascinating, uh, I want to give you a little bit of history. And we'll talk about a few different ciphers as they kind of developed in history and how they were used. And they're much, much simpler examples than the really crazy computer stuff that we do today. Um, but it's the same basic concept, um, it, not only in creating the cipher, but in the, the technologies and the, the, the techniques that we use to try to break those ciphers. You know, if, I, if, if the enemy is the one who's encrypting that message and I really want to see what that message is, um, I try to break their cryptanalysis, or I try to break their crypto, which is called cryptanalysis. So uh, we're going to talk about that today. And let's start, um, let's start with the classic, what we call a, uh, a Caesar cipher. Uh, and that's named after Julius Caesar. Uh, it was thought that he used this technique to send his messages to his armies, out to his generals. He wanted to send them secret messages, of course. He didn't want them to be intercepted and have the bad guy, or have the other guys, <laughs> have the other guys know what his secret instructions are for his armies, right? So Julius Caesar is one of the, was one of the you know one of the early users of what we would call cryptography, uh, secret or hidden writing. Uh, and what the Caesar cipher is, it was actually what we would think today is actually very simple. It's what we call a substitution cipher um, or or a rotational cipher. In this case, a substitution cipher means that you want to say, okay, so we, let's, let's work in all these cases. Let's, let's work with the English alphabet. So A through Z. And if I want to encrypt that message, a simple way to do that would be to replace every letter in that message with some other letter, uh, in a way that I could reverse that on the other side and get the original plain text message back. So the Caesar cipher was very simple. All he really did was he, he wrote out the alphabet in order. Uh, and then he wrote out the alphabet again underneath that and shifted it left or right by a certain amount. Uh, and it can change. If you think of there's 26 letters in the alphabet, then you could shift it basically 20 different, 25 different ways uh, to have a different mapping. So let's say we just shifted it one, just one letter. So at that case, then A is replaced with B, B is replaced with C, C is replaced with D, and so on, all the way down to the end, where Z is actually replaced with A. So it goes all the way through. We've, we've only just shifted it just one character over. But if you did that, if you, if you changed all the letters in some sentence uh, to the next letter in the alphabet, like the word the would become U-I-F, instead of T-H-E, right? Because U follows T and uh, I follows H and F follows E in the alphabet. We've shifted them by one. That is a Caesar cipher with a shift of one. And that is what he would do to, to encipher his messages to his, to his generals. There's actually a special version of this that's called ROT13, R-O-T-13, R-O-T 13, which is uh, shorthand for rotate 13, which is to shift the whole thing by 13 characters. And since the alphabet is 26 characters long, it's kind of like you kind of like fold the alphabet on itself uh, and map it that way. Anyway, so if you've ever seen ROT 13, that's what that was talking about. It's a, it's a classic Caesar cipher, a shift cipher. Um, so now let's flip all this on its head. What if we were the enemy? Or what if the enemy was the one sending the message and we're the good guys and we want to decipher that message? We catch the catch the runner out in the field. He's taken the encrypted message to the the enemy uh, generals and we want to we we've intercepted that message. We want to read what it says. How would we? How might we figure this out? So this is called cryptanalysis. This is the flip side of this. This is trying to break the cipher, trying to figure out what they did. And 
if you if you're working with what we call a substitution cipher, where you know um, that you just take one of the letters in the alphabet and you map it to one of the other letters in the alphabet, and that's a unique one-to-one mapping, um, you you could try some some very basic technology uh, techniques to break this. And just and this is important to understand because this is exactly what the bad guys are trying to do every time that we come up with this, one of these kind of encryption ciphers. They're trying to figure out the patterns. They're looking for clues. They're trying to use any bits of knowledge that they can, that they can come up with that might make it simpler to figure it out. So let's assume, let's assume that we've encrypted this message or that we've intercepted this encrypted message. And let's assume that it's a Caesar shift cipher. So if you think about it, there's really only 25 possibilities. If we could, we could just by brute force, we could try all 25 possible Caesar shift cipher combinations and decrypt it each one until it kind of looks readable, right? When we find the right one, if we've guessed correctly that it's a shift cipher, then one of those has to be right. So, you know, we'll, we'll shift it by one and try it and decode it. And if that doesn't look right, we'll shift it by two and try again and, uh, and so on and so forth until we get words that makes sense. At that point, we've decrypted it. We figured it out. We found the right shift. Okay. So that, that's one way to do it. Um, but it, the, another way you could do it, it might be a little smarter. And this is where real cryptanalysis starts coming into this. If you look at the English language and there are some letters of the English alphabet that are used more often than other letters. For example, the letter E, if you've ever watched Wheel of Fortune, <laughs> especially in the old days, back in the old days when it used to be different, they, you know, you do that thing at the end where they give you, you know, uh, uh, the, 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 the thing you've got to guess with so many letters up on the screen, they're all blank and they let you choose five letters in a, or four letters in a vowel or something. Uh, and then if you pick those letters and they're on the board, they will reveal them. And then you still have to figure out what the thing is. This is kind of like a deciphering thing. And everybody of course always picked E for the, because E was the most common vowel in the English language. Um, so it was the one that was most likely to be there and be of most help. Um, so E by far is the most used letter in the English alphabet. So if you had enough ciphertext, if you had enough of this encrypted message that was kind of long enough and you just went through and counted which letter appeared most often, that was probably the letter E. So let's say you go through it and the, the, the letter used most often is T throughout the whole thing. T was the most common letter in this message. And then you just assumed that T mapped to E. And now you know, you, now you know what the shift is, right? Whatever the distance between E and T is in the alphabet, I don't know. But whatever that distance is, you figure out that is and you shift your alphabet. Now you try all the rest of the letters and see if that mapping makes sense. So that would be one way to do it. Um, and you could also, it let, you know, because let's say it's a really short message, then maybe the, the count of each letter is off a little bit, you know, because when you you don't have too many letters to choose from, when the message is really short, you know, maybe that pattern of E being most common doesn't jump right out. So, you know, you might then look at the second most common letter and say, maybe that's E and, and then try to map it like that. So that's called frequency analysis. You're using what you know about the English language and how common certain letters are and using that to your advantage. And that is a classic cryptanalysis trick that is beyond just brute forcing it. That is saying, if I, if I'm assuming this is a substitution cipher, um, then, and I assuming this is a, the plain text is an English message that I'm, that I know because I have studied the English language that E is the most common letter. And so that is a classic cryptanalysis technique. And that is, that is how, that is the basic 
basic concept behind almost all of these code breakers is looking for little clues like that, looking for little differences, looking for little, little things that allow you to make the problems simpler. Um, the classic one that we, that you may know from history is the Enigma, the German Enigma machine. And it was a really complicated cipher. It was, but it was a mechanical box basically that had three rotors in it. And in these rotors, each of these rotors was like a decoder pin. It mapped one letter of the alphabet to another letter of the alphabet. Um, and it did, you, you put these rotors in sequence and it actually kind of had a circuit that went through, you, you hit a key on one part and uh, the circuit would go through each of these rotors and come back actually and reflect back and go through again, coming back through the other side. And it would light up a lamp for the letter that that would correspond to. But what really made this so hard to figure out was not only the fact that there were three rotors and three different substitutions going on, and actually it came back and went through the other side too and did substitutions again. But every time you hit a letter on the Edingma machine, that first rotor would, would move ahead one. It would spin. So the actual substitution changed with every letter. And once that first one went all the way around, then the second one would spin one. And it would just keep doing that until all three rotors spun 26 you know, 26 positions. So if you kind of add all that up, there's a whole ton of different ways that that could be put together. And of course, you'd have to know, um, you kind of have to have a machine to figure that out. And the other thing is you need to know, and they had, a, they had this code book to ha for how to set this up. Every Everybody who's creating a code knew that on, for, on a certain calendar day, you used these rotors and you started them in this starting position, and then you start your message. That's how they all knew what to do ahead of time. They, they had these code books that they shared very carefully amongst all their code um, uh, guys that, that sent the coded messages and decrypted them on the other side. They each had a copy of the same book that said, on this day, start with these rotors in these positions. And Alan Turing, famously, along with some other folks um, at Bletchley Park and, uh, and building on some work done by some uh, Polish researchers, figured out how to break the the enigma machine and that is a topic for a whole other show but if you haven't seen um the imitation game i highly recommend watching that movie okay let's get back to our ciphers now so we talked about a very simple caesar cipher uh named after julius caesar um so how might we kick that one up a notch how might we make that one more difficult well the next set would be a substitution cipher where it's not in order, where it's not just the same alphabetic characters shifted by one or two or three and doing the mapping. What if we just mixed it up and made it all gobbledygook, like take your Scrabble thing and just randomly pick out letters that, that map to A, B, C, D, and, and use that as your substitution cipher. We can still use frequency analysis in that, in that case. Whereas before, we could, we, we could brute force, if we knew it was just a shift, just a simple shift of the alphabet, we actually only had 25 possible combinations, and we could try them all if we really wanted to. But if we actually just randomly assign the letters, you know, A to T and B to Z and C to F and whatever, you just pick something, that becomes a lot harder. There's a lot more ways that you can mix that up. But frequency analysis in this case still helps you here. If you could find the, the letter that happens most often, you could still assume that that is E. But unfortunately, now you're stuck with, you can't just from there figure out all the rest of them. Now you've got to go to the next most common letter and assume that that is the next most common letter in the English alphabet, which I think is uh, T. Um, S is also very common. R is common. When you're doing script analysis, you have to know these kind of things because these are the kind of inside info that actually helps you figure out and break your ciphers. So... 
there's more to it than that though. So let's think about this. How else might you figure out what these letters are? You can look at frequency analysis. That's one, that's one thing. What else do we know about the English language? Well, if you left the spaces in, if you didn't take all the spaces out in your message, you left the, the, the spaces between all the words, you can look for other patterns. For example, the most common three-letter word in the English language is the. So if you find a lot of three-letter words that are all encrypted the same way, they all come out, you know, Z-Y-V, um, then it's very possible that Z-Y-V maps to T-H-E. Um, you could also look for one-letter words. The most common one-letter word in the alphabet, I think, is uh, A. Um, or maybe I. That's probably you know, I as in me. Uh, that's probably another that's very common. You could also look at the positioning of those words. You know, how often is, you know, th these things at the start of a sentence. Um, all these kind of things start giving you more and more clues about what letter could be, could map to what other letter. So those are the kind of things that you do. That's what a cryptanalysis uh, person does. That's what a code breaker would try to do. Look for these kind of patterns and try to figure these things out. So let me kick it up one more notch. And this is going <laughs> to, this is probably going to hurt your brain a little bit, but just go with me a little bit other than this. And then we're going to talk about something even cooler. Um, the next step, how do you, how do you make that even harder, right? So how do you defeat things like frequency analysis or, so, or, or all these other techniques I just talked about? Well, for one thing, you take the spaces out that, that, that gives you a lot less information about word boundaries and, you know, finding patterns in the words that might help you to, to figure out what letters map to what letters. But what if I actually had more than one mapping? And that's what we call a polyalphabetic substitution. Or uh, I'm going to probably get this name pronounced wrong. Visionaire, um, V-I-G-E-N-E-R-E. -E. Pretty sure that's a French name uh, for the guy who basically came up with this technique. And all right, follow me on this one. So let's take our standard Caesar cipher where we take the alphabet, A through Z, write it down. Now, just under that, write A through Z again, shifted by one. So you start with B all the way through Z and then A at the end. And below that, you shift it one more time. So you start with C all the way down to Z, and then it's A, B at the end of that. And you keep going. If you do that, you'll have 26 columns and 26 rows. The very top one will be the regular alphabet. The very bottom one will be the alphabet shifted by, you know, all the way through where it starts at Z. Uh, then goes Z, A, B, C, all the so. So you've got rows and columns. Now, now you need a keyword. And let's say I pick dragons. Dragons is my keyword. So knowing the keyword, I write down dragon, 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 just one after the other. And then right below each letter in each of those dragons, I write the message that I want to actually send. So drink your Ovaltine, which is the classic uh, one from the Christmas story. I love that. Love that movie. Um, and in that book or in that movie, he has a little orphan anti-decoder pen. And so, you know, he, he sets his decoder pen, you know, Pierre Andre tells him how to set it, and then they, he decodes it, and it turns out the message is drink your Ovaltine. Okay, so, so let's say that's our message. So underneath dragon, 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 I put drink your Ovaltine with no spaces. So the D for drink follows under the D for dragon. Well, that's not great because that's, that's D to D, but anyway. Uh, and then the R for dragon uh, follows, um, oh, crap, that's R too, drink, dragon, same. <laughs> and then the A for dragon lines up with I. And then the G for dragon lines up with N. Are you follow me on this? So you, you write out the keyword back to back to back and as long as your message is, because it's got a map to all the letters of your message. Now go back to that table we did with the columns and rows 
and you look at, for the first letter for D for dragon, then you go to the D row on your thing, and then you look up what the mapping is for D in that alphabet, in that substitution. And then the next one, you look and see what R maps to, and so on and so forth. I know it's confusing. But basically what you understand about this is what we've done is we've, we've done the substitution cipher, we've done the Caesar cipher, but every single character of our thing has a different mapping. Well, that would make it a lot harder to do our frequency analysis, right? Because now it's no longer, E doesn't always map to the same letter all the time. It, it, depending on how long our, our, our key phrase is, um, it could it maps to, you know, let's, I picked dragons. That is seven characters. So there's seven different mappings at work in this one cipher. So, wow, what do you, how, what do, you do with that? How can you possibly break that? Well, again, it just think of the cleverness that it would take to figure this out. But they did. It took them like, I don't know, like 300 years. You know, people thought this was totally unbreakable. Um, but somebody came up with this method where the key is you've got to figure out how long the key phrase is. In our case, it was dragon. It could be, or dragons. Um, you need to figure out how long the key phrase is. So how do you do that? So if you can figure that out, then you know how many different substitution ciphers you're dealing with. And you can break up your message so that, uh, okay, let's say I figure out, how do we figure it out? The way they did this was they kind of looked for common words like one-letter words or two-letter words um, that were encrypted the same way. Because at some point, your thing repeats. At some point, you're going to encrypt things the same way again. So if you have a long enough message and you can figure out, like let's say it's the word an, A-N, or or, O-R, or to, 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 if you, if you find two character words that are, that are done the same way, and if you f assume that they happen to match the same point in the, you know, in the, in the repeating keyword length process, then you can figure out how long the passphrase is. As soon as you figure out how long the passphrase is with any kind of confidence, let's say it's seven, let's say we figure out the passphrase is seven characters long. I can now look at the first, you know, seventh, 15th character of this message and pull all those out. Those are now all encrypted with the same substitution cipher because that is the key length. So I can now, if I can reduce, I can look at every seventh letter basically and put those into groups and then do frequency analysis on each of those groups independently. I know, kind of blows your brain, but... <laughs> That is how, that's how this stuff is done. And that was the cat and mouse game that they went through with cryptography over the years. Everybody, you know, somebody would come up with a method. Somebody would figure out a way to break that method. Someone would come up, come up with a little bit better method. Someone would come up with some way to break that method. And it just, it just kept going back and forth and back and forth. Now, of course, today we do all this with computers and there is no way, no way that a human could possibly manually on paper try to crack the codes that we have today. You need computers to beat them because computers created them. Um, and yet we still have computers that do it because our computers are extremely powerful. Uh, and it's basically all just kind of a, you know, a different take on what I just walked you through. That is, that is the, the, the fight that is going on between the people that are creating cryptographic algorithms and the people that are trying to break them. And on, honestly, they're, if it's done properly, those are the same people. So it's a peer review thing, like any scientific journal. So it's, you know, somebody comes out with what they think is a really good crypto algorithm and they give it out to all their friends and say, break it. And, and they try to break it. And that's why 
you never want to roll your own cryptography. That's gotten way too good. Our computers and techniques for breaking this stuff are way too good. You, um, we need experts to be creating these things, and we need experts to be trying to figure out how to break them. Okay, now let's take a slightly different turn. Um, one of the problems with cryptography and encrypted messages and ciphered messages is they look fishy, right? You know, so if you intercept a spy or whatever, and he's got some piece of paper with what looks like gibberish on it, you're pretty sure that's an encrypted message. So you're going to be putting all your time and effort into figuring out what that message says. Um, that is one downside to encryption is it's kind of obvious when you see it. It's, you know, something that should be a clear message looks like gibberish. That's probably something that's encrypted. That's immediately going to get your attention and it's going to draw uh, draw, draw all of your resources to trying to figure out what that is. So what if there was another way to do it? What if instead we hid something in plain sight? Uh, that is what we call steganography. Uh, and if you break that up, um, it's basically the roots come out to be covered writing. Uh, and let me give you an example of what I mean by this. So classic tale, uh, back in ancient Greece, um, there was a man named, De, I'm going to probably get this wrong, Demaratus, um, and he was loyal to Greece, but lived in the area where Xerxes was and knew of Xerxes, learned of Xerxes' plan to uh, surprise and invade Greece. And being loyal to Greece, he figured he had to find some way to warn the Greeks that uh, Xerxes was coming. So here's what he did. Back in the day, uh, we didn't have, you know, easy access to paper and pen like we do today. And what they often did is they would take wooden tablets and they would coat them with wax, you know, some sort of like a dark wax. And then you would take a, a quill, you know, a sharp, a sharp tip thing, and you'd write in the wax. Uh, and that would hold your message. And then when you're done, you could just remelt the wax and start over, kind of wipe the slate clean. So that was a common method back then for, you know, sending messages uh, so that you could resend them. And what he did was he took one of these tablets, these wooden tablets that had bl a blank wax cover on it, and he took all the wax off. And then under, underneath that, he, he scrolled, um, he scribed a message into the wood. He scratched his message into the, into the wood. And then he put the wax back over on top of it. So the wax wasn't clear. You couldn't see through it. You couldn't see the message underneath. And to anybody who looked at it, like, say, the sentries at the, at the city gate where these, um, the spy was trying to carry this message out of enemy territory and back into Greece to warn them, they got right through because they looked at these wax tablets. Like, oh, yeah, he's got blank wax tablets. No problem. Go ahead. And, they've, and I don't know how, if he just assumed or hoped they would figure this out. But when the, when the tablets got to Greece, um, uh, they figured out that somehow that there was a message underneath this thing. And they took the wax off, saw the message, they were prepared for Xerxes, and they laid a trap for him. And the rest, of course, as they say, is history. So that is an example of what we call steganography. The message was there, it was in plain sight, but nobody, know to look, nobody knew to look for it underneath the wax. If they had, they would have totally been able to read it. There wasn't any, it wasn't encrypted in any way. If somebody had figured out to scratch that wax all off and look underneath, they would have seen the message. Uh, but they didn't. And that was the whole point. It was it's kind of what we call subs, uh, security by obscurity. Uh, it was there. Anybody could have seen it if you wanted to, but uh, because it looked like something else and it looked unthreatening, uh, they didn't even think to look at it. So now let me tell you how we actually use this today. Um, and it's really clever. And it, 
it will take a little uh, a little bit of technology, but bear with me here. So when you send an image to somebody, when you send a picture, a digital picture of somebody, that is uh, a row and column set of what we call pixels. And each one of those pixels, each dot that makes up that image uh, is, is on a, is in a, a row and column. So when you look at like the resolution of your image, if it's, you know, 640 by 360, that's how many pixels? It's 640 pixels wide by 360 pixels tall. That's rows and columns. It's a table. And if you, you know, zoom in, you would see individual dots making up that picture. Kind of like on your television, but a little, little bit different. Um, the old style television, uh, when you had the CRT tubes, it was similar in that regard because it had three colors. There were actually three dots that made up every pixel. There's a red dot, a green dot, and a blue dot. Because if you take, if you remember your old schooling, you know, with paints or lights and science and whatever, but in particular with lights, uh, if you add red and green and blue together, you get white. Um, and it's, so if you vary how much red and green and blue light is in something, you can change the color and change the brightness and all these kind of things. So when you sit, when you create a digital image, you have rows and columns of these pixels and every one of these pixels is described as a combination of red, green, and blue. And what we do is we take uh, one byte of data, that's eight bits, eight little ones and zeros and say, okay, I want this much red, I want this much green and this much blue. And depending on how much of each of those you pick, that pixel is a certain brightness and a certain color. And you, if you do that for every single one of them, you paint a picture, basically. You, you create the image. That is how digital images are represented on our computers. Now, if I'm sending you an image and I have eight bits per pixel, that's 24 total bits per pixel. One, eight for red, eight for green, eight for blue. Like a you know, binary numbers, just like decimal numbers, have meaning. Each of the places of those bits has more and more significance. So if I have a 10-digit number, that first number is the most significant. So let's see, 10, that would be 10 million, right? So if I had one followed by nine zeros, that's 10 million. So if I change one to two, that's the difference between one million and two million. That's a huge difference. But if I change the last digit from 10 million to 10 million and one, that's very close. Those two numbers are very close together, so close together Given that, you know, I'm looking at 10 million of these, I really can't tell the difference between 10 million and 10 million and one. So the way we work steganography into this is if I take all those pixels, each of those pixels, let's say I just take off the lowest two bits of each of those bytes. So instead of eight bits, I'm using basically the, the most significant six bits, the, the ones that are the most important, the ones that really matter the most. And I'm just playing with the last two bits that really don't mean much. I can actually use those last two bits to encrypt a whole different message. Maybe another picture, maybe some text. I could pick whatever I want, but I've got now I've got two bits out of every pixel, actually six bits out of every pixel that I can put whatever I want in there. And the thing is, because I'm only twiddling those last two bits that really don't mean that much. Again, like, you know, think of the difference between 10 million and 10 million and one. Actually, it's the difference in this case between 250 something and 240 something. If I change just those, it's really not going to change the image. In fact, you probably just by looking at the image, you probably can't tell. But if I knew as the recipient of that image that I could break that down and, and peel off the last two bits of every one of those pixels, then I could decode the message. That is steganography. That is how we would do it today. And it's being done today, actually. Um, there are tools you can get on the web right now. You can probably search on steganography and uh, come up with the, the, There's little apps that you can get that will take a picture 
you can tell it what you want to put in the background uh, and it will encode it in the background. And then you can look at the, 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 the image difference and you won't be able to tell. Um, that's the whole point. Uh, but of course, if, if you knew, if you knew that somebody was doing that, then you could analyze the image and probably easily come up with the, uh, come up with the encrypted message. That's kind of how steganography works. So that's the flip side of it. So if you do believe there's a message there, it's usually with normal, just plain old steganography. It's easier to figure out once you've figured that out, just like with the wax tablets. If I knew there was a message under there, it would be trivial to melt the wax off and read the message. The key was that I didn't know there was something underneath there. So... That is steganography. And that is our kind of wraps up our talk about cryptography. The only thing I'll mention at this point is if you really wanted to kick it up a notch, you'd just combine those two, right? You would you would do your steganography to, to hide the message in plain sight, and then you would encrypt it. You'd use cryptography to encrypt that message. And then even if they did find it, they wouldn't know what to do with it. <laughs> so there you have it. There is our little tutorial today on that is what means that that's what it means when we talk about encrypting something. And that is what we mean by breaking a code or using cryptanalysis to try to reverse engineer a code and figure out what the deciphered message would be. <sighs> Thanks for hanging in with me. I know that was highly technical. Trust me, we, we, we have only scratched the surface of this, but I wanted to give you an idea because we talk about this all the time in the show. And I just wanted to give you a little bit of a taste, just a little flavor of what we mean when we talk about cryptography and, and breaking codes and why, why we use them in the first place and the different kind of techniques that we use to create them and then to try to break them. Uh, I find that stuff personally just fascinating. If, it, if this has piqued your interest at all, uh, you need to check out a book called The Code Book by Simon Singh. Uh, it's a great book. It goes through a lot of the examples I just went through. Uh, and many, many, many more from history talking about you know, how these ciphers were used in crucial parts of um, world history and just fascinating stories. Uh, and it goes into much more detail with pictures, which really helps, by the way, <laughs> uh, that shows you how all these things work and how they and what they did to try to defeat these codes. Uh, I just find it fascinating. So check out the code book by Simon Singh. It's a great book. Um, and for some reason, you want to even kick up a notch after that. Uh, the, the definitive book on this topic is called The Code Breakers by David Kahn, K-A-H-N. Uh, so that's, if you really want to kick up, kick up a notch, that's the one you want to check out. And of course, you can always check out my book too, Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. We cover these kind of topics there. Don't quite get into the history so much, uh, but we talk about other uh, crypto techniques and things like that that we talk about a lot on the show. Um, you know, including public key crypto and asymmetric crypto and hash functions and all that kind of stuff. So lots of great reading. If you want to go a step further, thanks for hanging with me on this one. And I uh, hope you all had a great time. I really enjoyed it. And tune in again next week, everybody. We'll have another, we'll get back to our news and interviews. And uh, until then, as always, don't get caught with your drawbridge down.